from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 11th. Today, why Liz Cheney is losing the battle for the soul of the Republican Party, and athletes still struggling with long-haul COVID. Congresswoman Liz Cheney is the third highest-ranking Republican in House leadership, and she comes from Wyoming and is pretty well-known because of her last name. She is the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, and having that name has really helped her climb in the ranks and very quickly. Mariana Sotomayor covers Congress for The Post. She has been following the plight of Liz Cheney, the House Republican conference chair. As conference chair, you are essentially the messenger. You are the person who is supposed to unite the conference around a message to potentially, you know, regain the majority, which is what they want to do, or just keep their priorities on track, especially, you know, messaging on legislation throughout the congressional term. But she has seen her position as someone who can be outspoken, and she's been very critical of Trump and hasn't hid from that at all. And that's about to get her into trouble in these next upcoming days when Republicans now move to oust her from her leadership position. Mariana spoke with senior producer Rena Flores about Cheney's tenuous grasp on her position in House leadership. So why is this position now at risk? So Cheney has been very vocal about what she believes in. And that's something that many people who have seen her first coming into Congress and during her tenure as conference chair have really pointed to as something that's been consistent. She has constantly had her eye on the prize, which for her, of course, is continuing to rise in leadership, but also has not been afraid to just say what she believes in the manner that she thinks is best. So, of course, we could take it back to the day that Republicans had to take a vote and impeach President Trump earlier this year, his second impeachment, where 10 Republicans actually crossed party lines, joined Democrats to impeach Trump. And that was really the first time we saw in the history of impeachments, which have become more common in recent days, where that many people have actually voted to impeach the president of their own party. And of those 10 Republicans, she has really been very blunt about it. You know, the the former president is using the same language that he knows provoked violence on January 6th. As the party, we need to be focused on the future. We need to be focused on uh, embracing the Constitution, not embracing insurrection. Months ago, after the impeachment vote happened, many Republicans started to say, hey, she's not on track with us. She doesn't agree with what we believe. We should remove her from leadership. And In that vote, she was able to keep a majority of Republicans with her to say, nope, we should keep her there. At the time, many thought that she would in some ways fall in line that, you know what? Sure, she voted to impeach Trump, but maybe she doesn't have to talk about that all the time or she doesn't have to talk about Trump and point out these flaws that a lot of people have seen in the former president. 
And she didn't keep to that. I've been very clear about my views of what happened on January 6th, about my views of the president's culpability. Uh, I obviously voted to impeach him. Uh, I think that it was uh, was the gravest violation of an oath of office by any president in American history. Uh, and and I, uh, I'm, I'm going to continue to make sure people understand that. She said, you know what? Trump is not the future of the party. We can't embrace him fully because he has also managed to alienate a number of Republicans, traditional Republicans, Republicans that voted for her dad, for example. And if you alienate those voters, suburban women, independents, educated voters, it's going to be really difficult to win national office. So that has really been her pitch for a while um, and also has said that, you know, Republicans and, and the pathway that they're choosing, which is to embrace Trump, is really not the right one. That has caused a problem because, again, as conference chair, you are responsible for uniting the caucus around a message and communicating that to the American people, in this case, to be able to win back the majority. So a lot of Republicans were saying, wait, why is she still talking about Trump? We don't want to look at the past. We want to look at the future and be united. And we can't have any kind of distraction. But they're kind of ignoring the fact that there is still a lot to do here with Trump, the fact that he keeps bringing up election fraud and also a number of falsehoods. I want to go back to sort of that moment immediately after the insurrection when they held the impeachment vote. So that happened months ago. What is this latest drama about? Like, why is this coming to a head now? And what is at the heart of this debate? Sure. So basically, Liz Cheney, of course, gets asked a lot of questions. And she, like I said, is not afraid to answer them, especially when it comes to Trump. So just the fact that she has constantly been talking about Trump when asked about it, and in more recent days, really responding to any statement that Trump puts out, that really annoyed Republicans. And this all kind of happened during their Republican conference in Orlando at the end of last month. They saw it became more apparent the rift between Cheney and not just the caucus, but also minority leader Kevin McCarthy. It really has been a snowballing effect of just annoyance and resentments. Can I can I pause you there really quickly? When you say annoyances or mm -hmm. minor resentments or maybe not so minor resentments, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah, well, the biggest example is definitely Cheney and McCarthy. It's become clearer and clearer over time publicly. And the first time we really saw the break was at a leadership press conference. They happen every single week. Reporters actually asked McCarthy whether they thought that Trump should go speak at CPAC, which is a big conference for conservatives that happen about once a year. And he said that he should. Yes, he should. And then the same question, more or less, was asked to Cheney. And she said, you know, CPAC can make whatever decisions they want, but I don't believe Trump represents the future of the party. That's up to CPAC. I've been clear in my views about President Trump and the extent to which following extent to which following January 6th, I don't I don't believe that he should be playing a role in the future of the party or the country. Once McCarthy started to hear from a ton of his Republican caucus that they were very frustrated about her being in leadership, he started to do some things behind the scenes to kind of lay the groundwork to one day potentially hold that closed vote again to remove her from 
her leadership post. I think she's got real problems. I, 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 I've had it with, I've had it with, it's, you know, I, I've lost confidence. And from that point forward, we really saw a snowballing effect where more Republican members started to come out and say that they wanted to see Cheney out and that they predicted she would be out by the end of May. And then we started to hear from Republicans about who could potentially replace her. And there were several names that were being floated. And once it was pretty clear that it the replacement would be Congresswoman Elise Stefanik from New York, you saw endorsements from Scalise, the number two Republican in leadership. And that was really the first time that leadership generally has acknowledged, OK, we're going to remove Cheney and replace her with another Republican. Do you support Elise Stefanik for that job? Yes, I do. It's interesting because as much as Republicans want to say this isn't an issue about Trump, this isn't about his falsehoods, impeachment, election fraud. It's not about that. Well, it is because if they're saying that, you know, they want someone conservative and pushing the priorities of the Republican Party as we know it today, well, Cheney voted with Trump an astounding percentage of the time, more so than McCarthy, more so than Scalise, and significantly more so than Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. But again, the bottom line is they just don't want someone really messaging against Trump almost on a daily basis. They want someone to fall in line. And all of that has seemed to really culminate in this upcoming vote on Wednesday on Cheney's position in the House. Can you tell me how that how that came about, how this vote came about. Sure. So Wednesday is the first time that Republicans will actually meet in a conference setting. It happens every day after they come in to session. So Tuesday is the first day that they will come back from being on uh, district work periods for several weeks. And the way that this is expected to go down is the only thing that some one Republican member has to do is raise their hand and say, I introduce this motion to try and reconsider this leadership position. And then they hold a secret ballot vote. It could just so quickly happen that they decide to hold another vote to nominate a replacement. We expect Stefanik to win, but this vote could also happen later in the week or potentially next week because there are some members of the caucus who are questioning Stefanik's credential. I want to ask a little about what Kevin McCarthy and some of the the House Republicans that want Cheney out, like whether or not you feel they have kind of a point, like if Cheney, who is supposed to be the messenger for the Republican Party in the House, if she is not delivering the message that they want her to, are House Republicans that want to kick her out, are they right? Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty interesting to see and, and just hear from different factions of the caucus. And yeah, you know, the ones who are saying that these members, this majority has a point is actually some of the people who actually voted to impeach Trump. There's a number of them who really support Cheney and her conviction to speak out. They find that admirable. And, and, and some have even said that they feel demoralized because they voted to remove Trump because he was spreading lies and they believe that that is what led to the insurrection. So to lose that voice, that opinion from a very high post is is very demoralizing to them. However, there are also some 
including those who see this as, as a loss for them, who say, you know what? At the same time, this is also a distraction. Trump is a reality in the Republican Party. And though we don't agree with the way that he may speak or the falsehoods that he puts out, he is the reality. We have to embrace him in some way. And at some point, you know, your own constituents may say, why are you constantly fighting with Trump? You should be fighting for me. So those members in particular are kind of at a crossroads where they say, maybe we should continue to speak out, but maybe we should be smart about it because we also know what happens if you're way too vocal and get Trump's attention. It's likely that behind the scenes, he will try and you know recruit a primary challenger or just make sure that you're out of office in, in several years. Can I ask you, do you think Cheney wants this leadership post for a party that she, you know, sees as following down a vastly different path than when she started out in leadership? Um, I ask because, you know, last time this happened towards the beginning of February, end of January, she was actively sort of whipping up support, right? She had Senator Mitch McConnell kind of came out in support of her at the time. She made a lot of effort also in her home state to kind of gather local Republican leaders around her there. Um, But I'm wondering, you know, looking at how differently she is approached it this time around, do you think she wants to to be the conference chair for for this new kind of Republican Party? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's the question that everyone's been trying to figure out. Why is she doing this? And and even some of her closest allies that we've spoken to have wondered the same thing. But really what it comes down to is she saw the writing on the wall. There was no way that if they were going to hold a vote that she would actually be able to keep her seat. But you're right. She's not actively whipping votes. She's really not asking for help. And even those closest allies to her aren't necessarily doing a, you know, save Cheney campaign. They haven't really been out there, vocal, tweeting, anything to try and say, we need to keep her and this is the reason why. It's very difficult for these Republicans to see that they have a place in this party. And, and, you know, she very much believes that she tried. She did use her leadership post as... She defines leadership, which is to speak out, to stand up for something, but it has come to a cost, so much of a cost that it. she has said, I don't want this position if it requires lying every day. So it, it really, for someone who came in wanting to be Speaker of the House one day, who definitely could have achieved that at some point, to now say it's just not worth it, there is some acknowledgement of just how difficult it is to be anti-Trump in some ways during this day and age and this Republican Party. Mariana Sotomayor covers Congress for The Post. This story was produced by Rennie Svernovsky. Rena Flores is the senior producer for Post Reports. A few months ago, Rena reported a story from Wyoming, the first time that Cheney survived a challenge within her party. This story is an interesting and prescient time capsule into how these fights within the GOP play out at home. If you want to take a listen to that episode, it's called Liz Cheney's Vote of Conscience. We'll put a link to it in our show notes and at postreports.com. 
This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Justin Foster is a defensive lineman for the Clemson Tigers. He's a college football player who had a bout with COVID that began June 25th. The first two weeks of his quarantine, everything seemed to go okay. He seemed to be fine. But shortly after that, he started to really experience some problems with shortness of breath and fatigue, extreme fatigue. Once I tested positive, I mean, I knew the risk of, you know, being having asthma and allergies and um, having just the preconditions that they talked about. At first, he thought it was just because he hadn't been physical for a couple of weeks from quarantining. But then as time continued to drag on, COVID just seemed to never let go of him. That's Michael Lee. He's a sports reporter at The Post, and he talked to producer Ariel Plotnick about athletes dealing with long-haul COVID symptoms. He missed the entire college football season, which would have been his senior year, and a year that was meant to improve his draft stock and help him pursue his dream of being in the NFL. But that never occurred because he never played. At the end of February, Justin Foster felt the need to announce that he was retiring from football altogether. And he just felt that physically he just wasn't going to be able to compete and to play at a high level anymore. So he made the very difficult decision to walk away. And for several weeks, that was the way his life was headed, that he was going to be done playing football. But he never really gave up. When I spoke to him in March, he you know, was pretty much done. But I did ask him, you know, if you get a chance to play again, do you think that you will try? He, he still felt debilitated by COVID, but he said that if I feel better and I feel like I can give it a shot, then I will. A doctor informed him that if he was able to train and get back into shape, that within two months, he could potentially be able to try out for football again and give it another go. So he's reversed course last week and announced that he was going to come out and play for Clemson, which is a huge uh, move for Clemson. But it still is an uphill battle. This is still a long haul. It's just a little more hope that it didn't end his career altogether. What is a long hauler? What are some of the COVID long hauler symptoms? So a long hauler is somebody who continues to experience COVID symptoms long after the usual incubation period. Extreme levels of fatigue, the brain fog that comes just being worn down, shortness of breath. You know, a lot of these symptoms are things that for athletes, you kind of don't really deal with very often. If you're somebody who's always on the go and always active and has been that way for your entire life. So Michael, long haul COVID symptoms 
are, of course, hard for anyone experiencing them. I'm wondering how they are uniquely tough for athletes. With athletes, typically you're going to have some, some like an injury. You know, if you, you break your arm, you break your leg, you know that it's going to take several weeks for it to heal. And then eventually you come back to being who you were. It's difficult when you have a sickness or a, a virus that there is no timetable that you can say, okay, in two weeks I'll be fine or in a month I'll be okay. You sort of condition yourself to think that after two weeks COVID's gone, but here you are two, three months later and you're still struggling to get out of bed. You're still struggling to walk through the grocery store. And so I know for Justin Foster, as an athlete in your mind, you you always push through. You don't just back down the moment you face a difficult challenge. You know, you're trained to just keep going and keep going and keep going. And that's what he tried to do. And I want to play. But, you know, just the fact of having an injury where you can't actually see something wrong. And just with, you know, every day, you know, are you getting better? And it's like, no. And it's kind of hard just for people to understand just when they don't actually see an injury. And so he asked questions. He asked the training staff. He asked doctors. He asked doctors from other uh, places. What's wrong with me? Why can I not do what I normally do? And since there isn't a lot of information about COVID and there isn't a lot of research that's been done, especially on long haulers, they don't necessarily have the answers. So that adds an extra layer of frustration for these athletes because they don't know how to solve this problem. They don't know how to move forward. So are other athletes dealing with long haul COVID symptoms? Have they spoken out as well? There are there are a lot more athletes out there who are dealing with this, who aren't really willing to speak on it because of one, they don't want to be perceived as being weak. You know, they don't want to be perceived as being someone that can't be counted on. There's so many players who have had struggles through the course of a season. They've had slumps, you know, but they don't want to blame COVID because they don't want to make excuses. And I think for some athletes, you know, especially when it comes to injuries, I know athletes who would never mention an injury being a hindrance because it would be a sign of weakness. And I think that with COVID, there probably are dozens, even more athletes out there who are dealing with debilitating pain who just don't want to speak out and don't feel comfortable saying anything because they don't want to think like people are saying, oh, well, look at you. You're so weak. You're just, you're just using that as an excuse. Just admit that you stink and move on when there actually is something that's more there. I'm not going to you know, say who it was, but I, I did reach out to a lot more athletes than, than I spoke to. And I know that one in particular really wanted to talk about it because he had a difficult season but he never has said anything publicly about it. Eventually his, his, his agent, you know, said that they weren't going to do it because they don't, they don't want to put the perception out there that this guy is somebody that's going to make excuses or this guy is somebody who can't handle it. And I think that's a difficult position for a lot of athletes to be in. So for athletes, particularly for young athletes, what is the impact of having to shift the expectations of your career? I, I can only imagine the mental strain that it's having because for most athletes, when you reach a certain age, you know your body can't do what you want it to do and you have to retire. That's sort of a gradual state, a process that you go through. But you also at least have had a career behind you. <laughs> when you're actually pursuing that dream and you have it taken away from you before you actually get there, I know it's going to be tough because of 
you know, what makes up who you are. Like you define yourself as being a football player or a basketball player, or a baseball player all this time. And now that's no longer a part of you. Now your whole purpose is just to get through each day and hope you have a good day and hope that the COVID symptoms haven't wiped you out altogether. When Justin announced that he was done playing football, a number of athletes reached out to him to share their own personal experiences, their own battles with COVID, battles that they still continue to fight on a daily basis. Now, now that he's decided to come out and play again, that doesn't mean that COVID is done for all these other athletes who are still dealing with the symptoms and still dealing with this struggle. It's a fight that's continuous, and it's one that Justin probably will still have to deal with going forward. And I'm sure there are a lot of athletes who probably feel like I, I can't play anymore, but tell themselves that they can't give up on that because they've invested so much time and energy and effort into being great, into being special. That's going to be something, I think, for a lot of researchers and things to eventually try to get into because the mental health aspect of it has to be just as devastating as the physical ailments. Michael Lee is a sports enterprise reporter at The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. Catch up on recent episodes by heading to our episode archive at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.